1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Canada's snap election campaign isn't going as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had planned. He thought it would be a good time to strengthen his party's position. But instead, he might be putting an end to his eight years in power. And in the country of Georgia, there's been a bias against daughters that goes back centuries, a preference that led to many sex-selective abortions. That trend is at last changing, but for now, the country has a troubling dearth of girls. First up, though. Guinea has just been kicked out of ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, after military leaders staged a coup over the weekend. Speaking after an emergency ECOWAS summit, Burkina Faso's foreign minister Alpha Barry insisted that all those arrested during the coup be
2: kept safe. On respect président Alpha Condé et immédiate président Alpha and that
1: President Alpha Condé be released immediately. Soldiers had detained him after storming a government building in Conakry, Guinea's capital. Videos showed the 83-year-old Mr. Condé surrounded and looking stunned. (laughs) Colonel Mamadi Domboya, the head of Guinea Special Forces and the apparent coup leader, took to national television, declaring the constitution and the government dissolved. On Monday, he said a government of national unity would be formed within weeks. Whether that will mean better governance for a country in desperate need of it is an open question as is just how long Africa's renewed trend of such coups will
2: continue. Coups are always surprising to some degree, but certainly to some Guineans and people watching Guinea, this was perhaps not such a shock. Kinley Salmon is an Africa
1: correspondent for The Economist.
2: That's because, you know, these causes have been coming for a while. President Conde, who's been ousted, was democratically elected, but had changed the constitution to allow himself to run potentially for two more terms. That was met with protests in the streets. Soldiers and security forces responded to those protests with violence. He then won the subsequent election, at least according to the official results. But that again was heavily disputed and there were protests. So there's been a background sense of frustration, which I think at the very least gave soldiers a pretext.
1: And what do we know about the people who actually carried out this coup?
2: The seems to have been led by Colonel Mamadi Dumbuya. He's been head of special forces in, in Guinea since 2018. Uh, that's a unit that was actually created by uh, President Condé. It's been focused in part on counterterrorism. And the colonel also had served in the French Foreign Legion, apparently also fighting in Afghanistan. And in 2016, he in fact asked for ammunition for training his team and was reportedly denied it because there were fears that he might use that to to stage a coup. We can't know for sure, but that's raised the question that this might have been planned for quite some time.
1: And what do ordinary Ghanaian citizens think of what's going on here?
2: Well, there's been some celebration in the streets, certainly. And that's partly because, you know, while... The economy has been growing quite well in recent years. The vast majority of Ghanaians are very poor. There's been a lot of frustrations over corruption. And even more recently, there's been anger about tax hikes, added, of course, to this issue about how long the president had stayed in power. So for some, even change that's come through the barrel of the gun still represents hope. And what about more widely?
1: How has the region and the international community in general responded?
2: Well, there have been a number of statements of of condemnation. Uh, Western countries like the United States and France have condemned the coup and called for the immediate release of President Alpha Conde. And I think it's worth adding that in the Guinean case, unlike in recent coups in Mali and Chad, where the West has had more obvious, immediate, and perhaps narrow security concerns fighting jihadists, and those concerns have trumped perhaps democratic principles, Here, the West doesn't have such obvious security interests, so they have been quite clear and they may maintain that level of condemnation for longer than they've managed in the past. Uh, And then the regional bodies, for example, ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, has suspended Guinea from its institutions and threatened some sanctions. ECOWAS is sending a delegation to Guinea and may follow up with further sanctions. But in fact, both Western powers and the regional community arguably have more limited leverage in guinea for example in, in the malian case the regional bodies imposed sanctions because they had the same currency and were able to control some of the financial movements in another country but guinea has its own money so that won't be possible in this case the flip side of course is that other powers like russia and china uh, have got more influence in guinea russia for example provided the first covid-19 vaccines to guinea this year and china gets half of its imports of bauxite from guinea sites used in the production of of aluminium, and Guinea boasts the world's largest reserves of the resource. But while China and Russia have condemned the coup, it's unlikely they will go further, particularly because the new strongmen in Guinea have uh, cleverly promised that mining will not be affected.
1: You mentioned recent coups in Mali and Chad. How does this coup in Guinea fit into that picture?
2: Well, unfortunately, it does fit into a recent uptick in coups in Africa, and particularly in Western and Central Africa. In the early decades after African independence, there were waves of coups. Nigeria, for example, had eight coups between 1966 and 1993. But since the early 90s, there was a relative stability, fewer coups. But now we're seeing, in recent years, a strong increase. We've had two coups in Mali a coup in Chad, Zimbabwe and Sudan, as well as a coup attempt earlier this year in Niger.
1: Why has the the number of coups ticked back up, do you think?
2: Well, there really is a mix of reasons and perhaps no simple explanation. One factor is that the African Union regional bodies uh, like ECOWAS have gradually softened their stance on some of these junta governments. Regional bodies have been willing to turn a blind eye to countries and prisons ditching their two-term presidential limits. They've recognized transitional governments. And that's, I think, emboldened military and in other parts of the continent. But these strictness about term limits was always a pretty delicate equilibrium, because at the end of the day, it's other African presidents who make up these regional bodies. And once a few of them become a bit less democratic, it can quickly accelerate, making it more difficult to condemn uh, the next coup that happens or the next diminution of democratic institutions.
1: So you think it's this sort of feedback loop in, in the region where the more coups happen, the, the more leaders kind of let them happen that's fueled this and, and may fuel more?
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, in this case, of course, we've seen the regional body ECOWAS suspend. Guinea, but they've done that before, including recently in the case of Mali. And so it may be that in this case, they they come through in the coming weeks with a stronger response, which breaks the cycle. But it's also very possible that we'll see within a couple of months, the administration a new government in Guinea effectively recognized in some form and and able to carry on, in which case that would continue the cycle.
1: And what about right now for, for Guinea and Guineans? What will happen next?
2: Well, the the soldiers have promised talks um, and an inclusive and peaceful transition, they say, but there's as of yet no clear indication of how long they plan to stay in power. And history in Guinea itself, I I think, gives further reason to worry. In 2009, after a coup, the putsch leader then Broke his promise uh, not to stand in the subsequent elections. Tens of thousands of people back then gathered in a stadium in the capital of Conakry to protest, uh, but soldiers opened fire on those protesters. They killed at least 150 people. Dozens of women and girls in the stadium were raped. So few are likely to be entirely reassured by the pronouncements from the coup leaders about transitional governments and inclusive process. Ghanaians have a lot of reasons for skepticism.
1: Kinley, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much.
1: For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence The link is in the show notes.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world.
3: Je me suis
1: entretenu avec son excellence la gouverneure générale. Les Canadiens iront donc aux urnes le 20 septembre. When Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced in August that he'd asked for Parliament to be dissolved and planned a snap election, it looked like a bid to solidify the position of his center-left Liberal Party. The government and indeed Parliament needs an opportunity to get a mandate from Canadians. To hear from Canadians on how to end this pandemic, how to- But the campaign hasn't been straightforward. In recent polls, Mr. Trudeau's liberals have now fallen behind the right-leaning conservatives. It's now less than two weeks until the election, and voters are being treated to a series of debates by the leaders of five parties, a high-temperature one last night in French, French, with another more widely watched in English to be held tonight. After six years in office, Mr. Trudeau has made a grand gamble, one that might put an end to his run as the country's leader.
4: Well, simply put, Mr. Trudeau believes he can convert his minority liberal government into a new majority. James Yan is a foreign correspondent for The Economist
1: and is based in Vancouver.
4: He is wagering that Canadians believe his government has responded well to the pandemic, so he wants to capitalize while he still can before Canadians ask tough questions about how to deal with a ballooning deficit, for example. So Mr. Trudeau was calling an election two years early. His mandate ends in 2023. How have voters responded to that? Not well, I think. Canada is in the midst of a fourth wave of COVID-19 Over two-thirds of Canadians say now is not the right time for a federal election, as it is not even two years since the previous one. And although Mr. Trudeau does not currently have a majority, he has not been constrained in his ability to govern. He has been able to win the support of opposing parties in parliament. Last night, Mr Trudeau defended his decision to call the election on the grounds that there are big decisions to be made going forward and Canadians deserve to choose the next government at this time. But the Prime Minister is being punished in the polls. Punished how? To to what extent? Mr. Trudeau's Liberal Party has experienced a sharp decline in fortunes over the last three weeks. The day before the election was called, most polling data suggested that Mr. Trudeau was within striking distance of a majority government. Today, however, the race has become extremely tight. I would say the Conservative Party has the momentum heading into the home stretch. And how has it gained that momentum, do you think? The Conservative Party is led by a man named Aaron O'Toole, and Mr. O'Toole is a former helicopter navigator in the Air Force. He is pulling the Conservative Party closer to the center of the political spectrum in a bid to win over swing voters in the suburbs of Toronto. For example, on social issues, Mr. O'Toole's predecessor said he would not march in pride parades, waffled on abortion... Mr. O'Toole, on the other hand, says he will march in pride parades. He is firmly pro-choice. On economic issues, Mr. O'Toole has shown a willingness to go against the grain of conservative orthodoxy. He says he is in no rush to balance the budget. He is pro-union. He also sees a bigger role for the government. In fact, Mr. O'Toole would even extend the Liberal Party's income subsidy scheme by agreeing to cover for employers up to 50% of a new hire's salary for six additional months.
1: And and how does that Conservative Party platform compare with what Mr. Trudeau is offering?
4: So I'd say Mr. Trudeau has not offered much in the way of new ideas. He is mostly campaigning on his existing record. And look, I think he's done a decent job of dealing with the pandemic... As a share of the population, the number of confirmed COVID-related deaths in Canada is just over a third that of the United States. Three in four Canadians aged 12 and older are fully vaccinated. I think the differences between the two parties are not as stark this time round. There are many analysts in Canada who call the Conservative Party under Aaron O'Toole liberal light. You know, having said that, there are some key differences between the policy platforms of the Conservatives and the Liberals. Although both party leaders support a price on carbon, Mr. Trudeau wants a much higher price of 170 Canadian dollars per tonne. Mr. O'Toole would cap that at $50 per tonne. And Mr. O'Toole has been unwilling thus far to adopt a clearer pro-vaccine stance for fear of alienating his supporters, some of whom are anti-vaxxers.
1: Given all that, that there's not a whole lot between these these leading candidates, does last night's debate give an indication of how Mr. Trudeau is, is, is going to fight back?
4: I think no politician on that stage last night scored a knockout blow. I do think Mr. Trudeau presented himself well and defended himself well. Mr. Trudeau was more aggressive than his usual self last night. He accused Mr. O'Toole of being a political chameleon, of saying different things in different parts of the country to curry favor with voters.
1: Mr. Trudeau
4: accused Mr. O'Toole of flip-flopping on issues such as abortion and climate change. In response, Mr. O'Toole said that the prime minister would say anything to win. But overall, I don't think the debate last night moved the needle that much, the English debate tonight will be more consequential because more Canadians will be tuning in. And so with
1: things this tight now, just a number of days out from the election, what's your guess? How do you think this will go?
4: So I think the result will hinge on two things. The first is voter turnout. And the second is the extent of vote splitting on both the left and the right. In terms of voter turnout, if Mr. Trudeau can get his supporters out to the polls he can potentially remain in power, if not in a majority position, at least at the head of a minority parliament. In terms of vote splitting, there's a risk of vote splitting on both the left and the right. There are three left-leaning parties Mr. Trudeau needs to convince left-leaning voters to consolidate their support behind the Liberal Party. There are two main parties on the right of the political spectrum. There's the Conservative Party and another party further to the right, a populist outfit called the People's Party of Canada, which is polling at a record 6% in the polls. And that could be a reflection of Mr. O'Toole's attempt to pull the Conservative Party closer to the centre. In any event, Mr. O'Toole needs to convince centre-right and right-wing voters in Canada to consolidate their support behind him. Mr. Trudeau lost about 6 percentage points of support in the first two weeks of the election campaign. With 10 days to go, that's plenty of time for him to make up lost ground.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, James.
4: Thank you, Jason. Pleasure.
1: An hour outside Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, a group of women discuss being pregnant with boys. It's very strange, one says, the attitudes from doctors when you go get an ultrasound and it's a boy. Some of the doctors expect a tip or encouragement money. That's because until recently, sex-selective abortion in favor of boys was common in the country. Marika Kordadze from the United Nations Population Fund has been working with women in Georgia and says doctors will often express pity if the baby is female.
3: Doctors are very biased because uh, if a woman goes to get an ultrasound and they already have two girls in the family. And the third one is also a girl they sometimes they say, oh, my God, poor you. Um, It's sort of like showing a sympathy that, you know, it's not a boy.
1: But there are signs at last that such attitudes in Georgia are changing.
3: There's been a preference for sons in Georgia for centuries.
1: Elise Burr writes about foreign affairs for The Economist.
3: But when Georgia was a part of the Soviet Union, they didn't have access to sex-detecting ultrasounds. That was in part because people couldn't afford them and in part because the West restricted export of the machines because some of their parts had military uses. So once the Soviet Union collapsed about 30 years ago, sex-selective abortion in Georgia really took off.
1: But where did the underlying preference to giving birth to sons get its start?
3: Well, some traditional families feel like they need a male child to either carry on the bloodline and family name, or they believe that sons will be the ones to take care of parents in their old age, whereas daughters are going to be taking care of their husband's parents. I spoke with Maka Chitavana, an economist at Tbilisi State University's Policy Institute, about why son preference persisted after the fall of the Soviet Union, and she told me that it's really connected to poverty in Georgia.
4: When you are poor and when you don't trust your government, when you are uncertain about your old age, you try to make sure that you have a son who will take care of you. And uh, that's how it is linked to poverty.
3: But in recent years, the preference for sons has been decreasing.
1: And why is that?
3: Uh, There's a couple of reasons. First, after the initial post-communist economic turmoil, women's wages rose in Georgia That's beneficial in a couple of ways. First, it can increase women's bargaining power at home. So say a woman might be able to overrule her husband who wants to abort a girl. And that's relevant because in Georgia, preference for sons is more widespread among men than it is among women. When women earn money as well, it might change parents' minds so that they think that daughters will be able to take care of them in old age as well.
1: So by now, there are, in fact, more girls being born.
3: Yes. So in the past few years, the sex ratio at birth in Georgia has basically gotten back to normal. It's hovered around 107 boys born for every 100 girls. And if nature takes course, 105 boys are born for every 100 girls. So for instance, in neighboring Azerbaijan, where sex-selective abortion is still rife, 114 boys are born for every 100 girls. And in China, which is probably the most famous country for sex-selective abortion, it's 112.
1: And what does this tell you, given that those kinds of statistics are kind of a proxy for how women are viewed in society? What does that tell you about Georgia these days?
3: Well, it's not yet a feminist paradise. The sex ratio is still skewed for a third children and in some rural communities. I spoke to a group of women about the issue, and not one of them could convince her husband to join the conversation So that shows that there's still some work to be done when it comes to son preference, especially among men. And even if attitudes do grow less sexist, Georgians still are going to have to face the consequences of previous biases. And next year, Georgians born into the most skewed birth cohort are going to turn 18. Some of those men may need to emigrate if they want to find a bride.
1: Elise, thanks very much for your time.
3: Jason, thanks for having me.